Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Women in Technology and Innovation, we are shining a spotlight on the remarkable female entrepreneurs, business leaders, and engineers who are changing the world through industry and innovation. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. Today's episode features Melinda Brianna Epler, the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, Jeremy Sussman, Senior Product Manager at Google, and Tom Gillis, Senior Vice President and General Manager at VMware. We'll be discussing actions we can all take to be allies to women and underrepresented populations in technology. Today's focus is going to be allyship, what it means to be an ally for women and other underrepresented groups in tech, and why allies are so important. I wanted to start, Melinda, actually with you, a question for you. We watched your 2018 TED Talk, Three Ways to Be a Better Ally in the Workplace. And you start by recounting a very uncomfortable experience you had giving a presentation when you were an executive at a global engineering firm in San Francisco. Can you share that story with us and tell us what it taught you about allyship? Yeah. So I have, you know, my whole life been really focused on creating social change, social environmental change. I started as a a documentary filmmaker and um, worked in the documentary film world for about 10 years and then eventually developed my own consultancy working with uh, Fortune 500 companies, mission-driven brands, social entrepreneurs and NGOs on creating social and environmental change through using storytelling and behavior change and and marketing um, strategies and eventually became an executive uh, at an engineering firm and I was the head of marketing and and culture and also led the behavior change strategies for um, our clients in the medical space uh, so working with large-scale healthcare systems on reducing their energy water and waste through behavior change campaigns and storytelling, kind of the, the work that I have done all along. And it was there, I was a, the only woman in a leadership team of 19. The rest were men, mostly older than me. And it just it was, a, it was a company that the culture was not created for me. It was not created for women in general. And um, so I was in many ways, I experienced a lot of microaggressions. So the little things that kind of can tear you down, um, can break you down over time. Um, and there are studies that show that microaggressions not only have emotional impact, but also have physical impact too, that ongoing stress from microaggressions can actually change your health outcomes as well. I didn't realize that at the time, honestly, I, you know, I kept trying to do my work well, but was interrupted, was belittled, was harassed as well. But but it was mostly the little things that really broke me down in so many ways, made me less innovative and less able to be a leader, an effective leader as a result as well. And it took me a while to kind of realize what was happening. I read some, I read an HBR article actually um, that that kind of talked about toxic workplace culture and microaggressions. And I had an aha moment. I was like, ah, <laughs> there it is. And there it is. And there it is. And there it is. And all, all around me, I'm seeing these microaggressions and how they're affecting me. And then I started looking at our data and realized it wasn't just me, that we really had a, a revolving door for women and for underrepresented minorities across the the organization. And so I put some strategies into place in that company, but I have always kind of wanted to to really have large large scale impact. And so I hired some 
some folks to continue on that work and then left to start Change Catalyst to really address diversity, equity, and inclusion in the tech industry here in San Francisco. You know, we're, we're surrounded by, by tech and tech is such an important industry and affects every piece of our world in so many ways. And so I really think it's important to, to address the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the tech industry. So left that to start Change Catalyst to really address that. I would say that, you know, at the time, I, I didn't know what allyship was. That came later. But I would say that in retrospect, there's so many different ways that people could have stood up and said something or done something that really changed my experience and changed um, what was happening. And, you know, my one person trying to change an entire company is really, really, really difficult. We really do need allies. We need people to recognize that exclusionary practices, that discrimination and, and harassment exist and help solve those problems. Yeah, so that brings me to the question about what is allyship? What is an ally? And Jeremy, you gave a talk, I think it was last week at Google about allyship. And you said something that really struck me as interesting and enlightening. You said, I don't think being an ally is a label you can give yourself, but what you can be is a privileged person who cares. So can you explain mm -hmm. to us what you mean by that? Yeah, there's there's two parts to it. The part about the label is you never are an ally. It's not a badge you can wear on a sleeve and say, I'm done. Because being an ally means doing things. And as long as you're doing them, you're acting like an ally. When you stop doing them, you're no longer being an ally. So I think it's very important to think of the verb, not the noun. That's what I mean by the label part of it. I point out that you can't look for things to do because they'll more, more find you. Push yourself on people. You're not being an ally. You're centering yourself. So that's the second half of it is what it means to do things is to reduce yourself and to center other people but to use the privilege you have to help other people. So it's taking something that you possess through really nothing you've done. My definition of privilege is unearned advantages or power. And so taking that and using it for other people. Point I think Melinda just made, like when something goes wrong and you're in the room and it's not pointed at you, because if you're the person who's receiving the microaggression or even the non-microaggression, which happens equally as often in the tech world. So if you're in a room with, for example, a woman who's being trampled, by men who won't let her speak. And you're a man, you can say, stop. Melinda just said something we should all be listening to. Why are you not listening to her? And I'm using my power as a person who can easily pop into a room because I'm a man and I take up more space than I should to help a woman who is not getting the room she should be getting. And so it's these acts. It's always an act. It's always something you do. It is not something who you are. It's something you do to help other people because of your position in the space as opposed to their position in the space. Well, you make it sound so easy, Jeremy. Like, why wouldn't you do that, right? Why wouldn't anyone do that to somebody who's being spoken over or whose ideas are being dismissed or taken credit for? I'm curious, Tom, as a you know executive at one of the biggest tech companies in the world, what was, what was your experience of being an ally at VMware and also at Lehigh University? What got you interested in what, what are some of the elements that you could say would say go into being an ally? It's a good question. And I think there's two sides to the motivation. One is, you know, trying to do the right thing for society, for equality and everything. But I'll be honest, like, there's also kind of a, a self-interest here, which is I've run engineering organizations all my life. And the hallmark of a great engineering organization is the ability to innovate. And I've always said, where, where do great ideas come from? And they come from everywhere. So the more diverse we are, the bigger and broader and stronger our talent pool, the better we are. And when I look at the numbers, it's like, I don't know, I was really super inspired by Bill Gates went to Saudi Arabia and he gave a talk at uh, a keynote that the Saudis had put together. 
and he's Bill Gates, right? So you can't manage him. And he got up there unscripted and he said, he said, I hate to tell you, but you're never going to be a leader in tech because you're throwing away half your talent pool. And they immediately hit the sensor button, like block, block, block that out, block it, stop. <laughs> but that's the point. Tech companies are fueled not by technology, but they're fueled by the people to create that technology. And so if we can culture and nurture and access a larger, more diverse talent pool, we're going to be better and stronger going forward. I love your term leaky pipe. And so, you know, as I look at this in, in very practical terms, we definitely have an upstream problem. And that when I look at Lehigh and what is the population of women in the STEM classes, it's still not 50%. And so, you know, you keep moving back up and it can really easily get hopeless. You know, you can be like, well, damn, this is just the way it is. And I just have to accept that. Dan and I were talking about, Dan is the chairman of the computer science department at Lehigh at the time. And we just kind of sort of came up with like, let's make a class around this. And the curriculum was simply just to discuss the issue. The thing picked up steam and you can see the impact it makes and it's tiny impact, but 100,000 tiny impacts adds up to a really big impact. And so that's why I'm here. And you know, the cool thing is like, the trend is our friend here. Like every company in the world is waking up to this and they're putting you know, a lot of energy behind it. I don't think it's to try to be hipster and cool and compliant because like my company will never be hip. You know, we make hypervisors, but there's a good healthy alignment of self-interest in the company and the right social thing to do. There's a lot of alignment there. And so I think we're going to see more and more and more awareness, growth, development in this area. I'm not naive to think that like next year it's going to be better because it probably won't, but like slow, steady progress. Yes. So we've read a couple of McKinsey reports for this class in previous mm-hmm. sessions that talk about, I mean, they show data that really gives evidence to the fact that diversity matters, diversity is not just a nice thing to do. It's a good business decision. It increases companies' return on investment. It's it's a good business decision. And we've seen a lot of companies over the past few years, technology and other industries, making huge efforts and investing a ton of money into the creation of diversity and inclusion programs, even hiring chief diversity officers to oversee these programs. Still, the numbers of women and minorities in tech are not increasing. Why? What, what are companies missing? What are we not getting right here? From my perspective, we are putting our money where our mouth is. All executive compensation is tied towards DNI goals at the company. And we missed our goals last year. And so everyone's like, oh, bummer. But I can point to a bunch of things that we've done where we've made these incremental changes and we go from 25% to 26. Just the fact that I even know these numbers is, is awesome. But the second thing is you know, that which is measured improves. So I look at population, but I also look at retention statistics. I look at pay, which we go through and and do our performance review across a 2000 person population. That's a big enough population that I think statistically these things ought to be equal. When they're not, I send them back to the drawing board and make them equal. So a bunch of good stuff is happening. Melinda, you talked about, you say we make a mistake when we see diversity inclusion as that side project over there that the DNI people are working on. Mm -hmm. What What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's it's so often companies will hire one or two people to to lead diversity, equity, and inclusion and expect that that's going to solve the issue. And it, it really does take all of us, every one of us, to 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 make that change because we are the culture. We are this the systems that are broken. And that that is where allyship comes in, that is where advocacy comes in and 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 really like doing our own work to first learn and unlearn, but then do no harm to each other and do no harm through systems as well that we are participating in perpetuating and then um, really lead the change as well because it takes all of us to lead that change and, and advocate for the change. 
you know, I, I will say that in the tech industry, one of the biggest reasons why it hasn't moved, a few reasons. One is that systemic change takes time. It does take time. Behavior change takes time. And, and we need to recognize that. And also, most of the time, we're not looking at it as systemic change and as behavior change, right? And really looking at the science behind that. We've kind of gotten in this cycle in the tech industry of starting with unconscious bias training as the answer. You know, we do, do unconscious bias training across the organization, do one or two, and that's it. Rather than going deeper and saying, what are the systems that need to be changed? How do we change those systems? How do we change the accountability structures? You know, how do we embed this work into our reporting, into our performance measurements, into really fundamentally as a culture deciding we are going to shift and here's how, and here's how we're going to hold each other accountable. So Jeremy, that leads me to you because you're you know, working at Google, you've been there for a number of years, you're on the allyship steering committee. What is Google doing to hold its leaders accountable for change? Most of what Melinda mentioned is true at Google, right? We've had unconscious bias for five or six years. I'm one of the people who facilitates that course. We have different courses along the way. I really like her point about going in depth rather than staying shallow. The problem you have is that you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. I find in these rooms, we tend to always be preaching to the choir. The same people show up at all the courses. The same people are very motivated in the space. And that's wonderful. And I, I love and appreciate those people. But you know, going back to, to a question you asked earlier, Samantha, I think one of the problems is when you're trying to change a culture, if one person acts poorly, the damage they can do is so much more multiplied than the benefits that, that someone who does the right thing can do. And so... You know, there's an old saying about it takes you know years to build up trust, but a day to break it. And I feel like the problem we have in a lot of these industries is this industry grew up in a place where we didn't care that much about culture. It was very, you know, the, the bro culture, to use a horrible term. It's so deeply embedded in so many of these systems that it's hard to route out and it's very easy to fall back in old patterns. And when you fall back in any of these old patterns, you do tremendous amounts of damage. And so retention is a horrible problem in these spaces. So we're, we're trying a bunch of things. We're trying a bunch of things against the wall. Some of them are sticking. But again, going back to Melinda started with, this is going to take a while and it's hard to even measure what's working and what's not working. When Kara Swisher was interviewing Mark Benioff about diversity and the poor diversity numbers, a number of women at Salesforce, he said, it takes a long time to turn around a huge barge, right? So, you know, these huge, massive companies, it just takes, it takes time. But that mm -hmm. being said... I want us to leave here with some tangible action items. What can we do? And I know, you know, Tom, you said, you know, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. What actions can each of us take on a daily basis? And I'm, I'm not just talking about in the tech workplace. I mean, we have students, you know, in college classrooms, we have students on Zooms. We have, you know, the people outside listening who come from different industries. What can we do as individuals to make a difference, to be allies, to support women in underrepresented groups in various environments? We can, we can do a lot, right? Like, you know, because I'm, I run an engineering team, I have a lot of latitude on this. And I think exactly the points that Melinda and, and Jeremy were saying. I remember I had a panel like this that I set up and I looked out in the audience and there was maybe like hundred people there. And it was all the kind of active people in our diversity community, like 75% women. And I flipped out and I like, <laughs> I stepped away from the thing and I called like 10 of my male leaders. They're the ones that need to have the conversation. And these are super nice people. Not that they're offensive or 
bad or you're causing the problem, but like if you're not part of the solution, you are part of the problem, right? And so, so just doing things to, to raise awareness, to, to, to bring more people into the community, huge win. The other thing that I see that works so well is for the women we do have in our community, mentorship is so powerful. And I really, really encourage the strong women leaders we have, like double your effort to be a leader, a role model for the, the next wave that are coming up. Because that's the way we're going to get there is building one wave on top of another, right? And so I think these are very actionable things. If I can, if I can build on that, I completely agree with what Tom said. He mentioned mentorship. I got started by doing a lot of mentoring. And in the industry now, you hear a lot about mentorship versus sponsorship. And I think mentorship is something we all can do. Literally anyone can mentor anyone. You don't have to be in a higher position or more experienced or older or anything. Sponsorship is the harder one. Sponsorship is the act of someone with positional power, choosing to pick someone to do something, give them an opportunity to do something they may not necessarily have been done, have been chosen to do. And that's where the old boys network happens is I've got this pet project I need to give to someone. I'll give to someone who looks like me. People don't actually say that out loud, but it's, that's what they do. And for someone who's not in a position of power, you can't force the people in positions of power to be better sponsors of a diverse set of people. That to me is the hardest problem to crack is how do we get people with positional power to sponsor more of people who don't look or act like them that's when you'll start to see things happen a little bit more more quickly. Mentorship is slower than sponsorship in my mind. Melinda, I'm curious if you have noticed that too. Yeah, I, I think also, you know, I will say that often in conversations where we're working to create change, the focus becomes around mentorship and kind of helping people or kind of bringing them, them up. And I think that is a piece of it but not the biggest piece of it. Sponsorship, I agree with you, that using your power and influence to open up doors that were closed to other people is really important because that is an intergenerational effect of exclusion. For hundreds of years, people have been left out of systems and as a result, they can't get into those systems. And those who have privilege, those who have power and influence can open those doors. And also, I think it's important to go beyond to, you know, what are the systems that really need to be changed? How are you creating a culture where people feel safe to call each other in when there are microaggressions and biases to feel safe to say something when a system is inequitable and those are then addressed. There's so much inequitability and inequality in our tech systems. And we still believe in this kind of meritocracy that everybody gets there by working hard. And that leaves a lot of people out. So we have to, as a result, because our hiring systems in tech are built around that meritocracy and we have to actually dismantle them and rebuild them, right? And so those are the key pieces that we miss when we just focus on unconscious bias training or we only focus on ERGs or we only focus on, on mentoring without really looking at those structures that need to be fixed and how each of us plays a role in that and needs to learn how to do those that those processes better. You know, you have to have the training and kind of that culture shift that happens. And then you also have to have the systemic shifts that are happening as well. So Melinda, I just want to dig in a little bit deeper because I think this is a really important point that you're making. You said that we have to unlearn everything we've been told about how to achieve success. And we're mm -hmm. told that you achieve it through hard work and merit. And you're saying that Silicon Valley tech world is not a meritocracy because there are systems in place. Can you just go a little bit deeper into that? 
The thing is that, you know, in our country, you do have to take into account history in all of this. And then the intergenerational effect of what happens when laws literally do not allow people to be educated and what that happens for generations afterwards. You need to look at the fact that if you to get into a Stanford, Berkeley, um, these schools that that are the feeder schools for the tech industry, you have privilege generally. Not always, of course, there are exceptions, but there are exceptions to a rule, which kind of proves that that rule, right? So we continue to do that in the tech industry, even though there's research that shows that and actually the education doesn't matter in the long run as to whether or not people are successful in their jobs in tech. Um, so somebody can come from a different educational background and succeed in tech just as much as somebody from Stanford. One example, we look in the tech industry and screen applicants based on their education. And that is one way that it continues to perpetuate the systemic and uh, exclusion. There's more and more investigation around pay equity and pay inequity and um, the need to, to fix that. It's an intergenerational problem as well because you have people who come into a company, you ask them, well, what did you get paid before? And if you are from an underrepresented background, underrepresented identity, you're less likely to get paid equitably, right? So now I'm going into this next company and it's continuing that cycle. These are the things that we kind of need to fix. Instead of doing that, we need to, everybody should be paid the same for the same work. I want to bring up, Jeremy, I know we talked a little bit about the uh, the Male Ally Summit that you participated in back in 2018. It was organized by the Anita Borg uh, Association, and it took place right in the heat of the Me Too movement. And the purpose of the event was to train men who want to serve as mentors and advocates to female coworkers, how to navigate this supercharged atmosphere of male-female working relationships. So tell us about that event. I know it was a little uncomfortable, but tell us about the event and some of the role-playing you did and what you learned over the course of that day. Yeah. So when you go to one of these types of conferences, you take a course in quote-unquote how to be an ally. There are a few very important lessons that you need to learn. And I think the one you mentioned is probably the most important one, which is out of discomfort, that we've all grown up in societies that do provide these privileges to you. You know, again, me as a white male, you know, cisgendered, et cetera, you know, I, I drip privilege. And so I've lived this way my whole life and you don't know the water you're swimming in if you're a fish. So one of the things that these conferences or, or lessons do very well is the kind of role-playing thing that, that makes you more comfortable standing up for yourself. You know, Samantha, you said earlier when I mentioned what you do, you said, that sounds so easy. And for some of us, it is easy because I grew up with privilege. So I'm used to taking up more space. So breaking into things is easier for me. And I'm not proud of that, but it's true. I can use it for good or I can use it for evil. It's a lesson that those of us who want to learn, it's good to learn. But I often find these conferences, I'm not a huge fan. I think they should exist. And I think people should go to them. But again, I think you tend to get the same people in the same things. I would trade 10 of those for one. For example, my favorite conference is Lesbian Sue Tech. I went to that last or two years ago before pandemic. And that blew my mind. Now I was sitting in a room with people who looked nothing like me, who had a lot to say, and were most of what they were saying is, why aren't more people listening to me? And I spent two days, three days sitting in those rooms listening to them. And it was wonderful. And so I would say, really, if you want to be an ally, sure, go to, a, go to an ally conference and learn the basic lessons, but then go to a different conference and listen to people who aren't other men who want to try to figure out how to do good. Listen to the women who are complaining. Listen to the black people who are complaining. Listen to the LBGTQA plus people who are complaining. Listen to the people who are on the other end of the spectrum of privilege and see how much you can take it. 
right? Sit there and listen and, and be empathetic and realize how much your heart's going to get crushed while you listen to these stories. And then think about what you can do to fix things. It's a much more effective use of your time, I believe. Uh, but I 100% agree with what you were saying is like going and getting trained on being, you know, sort of an advocate to me is almost like common sense. We're all in this. And, you know, Melinda, this is your point about like, if you outsource that to the DNI team, you know, and I, do, I watch this happen too. Some of my peers are like, DNI is super important. I'd like to introduce the DNI team to talk about DNI. Like tilt, immediately lost. You just like, the only thing that DNI team people should be doing is like running reports for me, you know, and like helping me with like, you know, coaching and guidance, stuff like that. Like the person who owns it is me. It's not the DNI team. You know, DNI team, like DNI team got nothing to do with it. like the, 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 the success factors here are, are under our control. And so I, I think just people just need to lean in on this stuff and just kind of wake up and pay attention and, 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 you know, and it can get better, significantly better, you know, by just how we behave today and tomorrow and the day after. I echo that. And I echo Jeremy's point, like a thousandfold of, you know, listening to other people's perspectives and not listening just to your own try, but taking yourself outside your comfort zone, putting yourself in those positions where you're hearing from people who are not, do not look like you. I think that's really crucial for change. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. If you enjoyed this year's Women in Tech and Innovation series, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Our newest series, Disruptive Engineers, will begin next week. We hope you'll join our conversations with industry leaders building cutting edge technologies in quantum computing, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, green tech, and more.